Thank you, Shelby and Jessica. Good morning and Merry Christmas. I like the I like all the Christmas garb. I see lots of red and green. And uh, for the special season, it's a, it's a neat thing to be able to do that to dress for the occasion. I appreciate your testimony, Helmet, of reminding us that sometimes there are very dangerous and scary things going on in our hearts that we don't know about. (laughs) And if they don't get attention, they could lead us to a place where we don't want to be. It's kind of scary thought sometimes. I think it's just as sobering to think along those terms in spiritual way. That there may be some spiritual things going on in our heart that we may fear or we may deny or we may not want to happen. But that need attention or they may take us to a place that we don't want to be. Our text this morning will talk to us about our hearts eventually. Um, But before I dive in, just a reminder that at about this time in two days, I will be playing with my Christmas toys. Because it will be Christmas morning. Now, how exciting is that? Several people, mostly young people this morning, have reminded me, two more days, two more days. And I'm excited. Christmas is, uh, and I'll share a little more of this in a few minutes, but Christmas is my favorite holiday. I like them all, but it's my favorite. And last week we were, um, we had dinner at the Mosses for an elder's prayer dinner. And people with big families usually have pretty cool Christmases because there's a lot of gifts to buy. And therefore, under the Christmas tree aren't just like five or six packages, like in some households, but they're just bubbling over with gifts. And it brought really fond memories to me as I saw their uh, great amount of gifts for their children, which were actually small compared to my household when I was growing up, where there were nine children. And I I envisioned our Christmas tree was in the corner on the sun porch and there were gifts. If if that corner poinsettia was the Christmas tree, there would be gifts about this. Well, about this far away from the Christmas tree piled up out there because there were nine kids. But also it was the season where mom and dad bought us practical things, too. It wasn't just all toys. There was You know, the long underwear and the pajamas and the school clothes and the socks and things that you need for every day. But you couldn't even get to the Christmas tree for a while because there were too many gifts to open. So that's the the, um, child memories that I have of Christmas. I love Christmas. And Christmas brings a lot of things out of us. It produces potential uh, joy and happiness and reverence and gratitude But just for gee whiz information, another thing that is important for our culture is numbers. We like to look at numbers. So let me just entertain you with a few Christmas numbers before we get into our passage to contemplate. What do you think the average price is for a consumer to spend on a live Christmas tree? What's just the average price? I'll throw it out there. Just anybody. Okay, $75. How about the average price for a fake Christmas tree? Y'all are good. Well, average is $107. And those that like to spend a lot of money, I hear the price is way up here, $200 or $300. uh, So anyway, uh, 
the number, and I won't ask you to guess this, but the number of real Christmas trees sold last year were 20. Hold on, I've got to find my place settings here in my math. That's thousands. So 27 million 400,000 real Christmas trees sold. Fake Christmas trees were not quite as many. It's about 21 million. How many years does it take for the average Christmas tree to grow to be able to be used or sold? Who said it? Seven. That perfect number. Seven years is the average year. Um, And how many trees are currently growing on Christmas tree farms in America? 350 million. So there's a lot of cash out there in those Christmas trees. How many people or what is the population of the United States? 329.2 million. So there are more Christmas trees. There's plenty of them out there. You might want to get two next year. About how much does it cost About how much is it costing you to light your Christmas tree and and keep it lit approximately 12 hours a day for approximately 40 days for the Christmas season? It is costing you about. Nope. Twenty eight bucks, twenty seven dollars and twenty one cents. Of course, it's I don't know how you could come up with anything really accurate but anyway so it's about $28 that's not bad it's worth it isn't it estimated value of all of the imported Christmas tree decorations or ornaments from China in 2016 2500000000 Estimated retail sales by the nation's department stores in December 2016. So this would be, oh, I got to find my place settings here. There's no, $22 billion, $700 million in the month of December in 2016 was spent for Christmas. Percent of charitable giving, giving that occurs between Thanksgiving and New Year's is 42.7% of the charitable giving occurs in that little block of time. How much will the average person in the United States, let's see, how much do they estimate they will spend on an average, the average person will estimate they will spend X dollars for a Christmas season. How many how much do you think that the average person intends to spend on any given Christmas? How much? You're almost average, Dr. Wine. It's seven hundred and ninety four dollars, so you got ninety four more dollars to spend between now and more Christmas. So average you got about eight hundred bucks a person. Uh that's the amount well it says people. So per per pe- per person or people. And then lastly Average number of homes Santa Claus has to visit on December 25th, assuming that there is at least one nice child in that home. <clears throat> 108 million. So Santa will be very busy. That's why he has to eat so much. 
celebrating Advent, um, I, I love this, the Christmas season and I love the, the, uh, the anticipation. And Advent kind of helps keep us focused on the new birth. It, it helps to draw us to Christ, not just for one day, not just December 25th, but the whole season that it entails. And so these candles and these lights and these testimonies draw us to that. And I think, at least for me, it builds the anticipation of celebrating the birth of Christ. And as I said, Christmas is my favorite holiday, and I know a lot of that has to do with my childhood. Of course, I have wonderful, wonderful memories of getting awesome gifts and toys for Christmas and getting lots of them. And and my brothers and sisters got lots of them and we'd share. And it was just a very, very delightful day. But I enjoy it, I think, um, for reasons that some Christians don't enjoy Christmas. I think one of the reasons that I most enjoy Christmas is because it is a huge cultural event. I personally like the way the entire culture gets behind Christmas and celebrates Christmas. And the entire culture that I was raised in and still lives in really gets behind it. And I know that for a lot of people, it's not even for the right reasons. But it's it's exciting to me to be able to drive by at night a house on the highway and see Christmas lights. And whether they realize it or not, they are celebrating the birth of Christ because that's the original reason why we even have decorations. All the decorations that we have symbolize and point to something about the Christ child. That's why we have our hanging of the green service. It's not just for the beauty, but it's to remind us the reds and the greens and the lights It's to remind us to pull us in to the Christmas story. So I really like Christmas because our whole culture gets behind it. Now, I know that some don't like Christmas and there's a lot of Christians that are kind of pulling away from it for that very reason, because they get frustrated and they say, but you're not doing it. And Jesus is the reason for the season and you're not doing it for the right reason. And that's understandable. And the Puritans were very conservative about holidays and they refused most of them to celebrate any holiday or make it a big deal any bigger than the regular Sabbath day is. Because they feared if you make this particular day a big deal or that particular day a big deal, what will happen is people will focus on the big deal about it and forget the original meaning. And they were right. That that certainly happens in our culture and is happening. But for me, I just kind of chuckle because I know the reason behind the lights and the decorations and the trees. and, 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 And so... It's a great opportunity to remind people that the reason, do you know why so many lights are sold for the Christmas season? Or do you know why you're decorating that tree? Do you know why we beautify things? Christmas is probably the easiest time of year to make a reference to Christ, to transition things to Christ, because it's all about Christ, whether people realize it or not, or have the right motive for it or not. So I enjoy it. And I think it is a very redeemable holiday that there's still a great chance for it to be redeemed and people focused on the right thing. And as a as our Christmas zone skit reminded us last week that 
Christmas is a night to remember. Because everything changed when Christ became man and entered into our world. So I want to talk about Christmas and the baby in the manger this morning. And I'm going to be reading out of, you guessed it, Matthew. We haven't had enough of Matthew. So we're going to go back to chapter 1 and read verses 18 through 25. The Christmas story. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken from the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I want to see three things in this passage this morning, beginning with the Christmas name, of course, which is the name of Jesus. We see in verse 18, uh, Matthew's account is of the birth of Jesus Christ. And then 21, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus. And then verse 23, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the baby born to Mary, the baby born to Joseph is to be named, thus saith the Lord Jesus. Now, Jesus is about as ordinary of a name that you could get in that day and age. So when Mary and Joseph lost Jesus in the crowds and they were hollering, Jesus, where are you? Probably about a hundred kids were like, who keeps calling me my name? So it's kind of like. The John Doe name of uh, of our culture. It is nothing unusual or, or silly or crazy about it. It is nothing like the names in Jerry Clower's story with uh, Uncle Versi and Aunt Pat who named their kids Ardell, Burnell, Raynell, W.L., Laynell, Odell, Marcel, New Jean, Claude, and Clovis. It's nothing like those names that we read about or hear about from Jerry Clower. And really much about the whole birth and, and, and the childhood of Jesus is very, very ordinary. So ordinary that the majority of people didn't even know what was happening. I mean, the most magnificent, epic thing ever. And, and most of the world didn't even pick up on it. And yes, he had his own star, which is, is magnificent. And yet, really only the Magi and their... Their traveling party understood it and were following it. And yes, he had his own chorus of angels of praise, but only the shepherds that were keeping watch at night 
picked up on that or were privy to that. He was just born into a, a poor, honest, hardworking, run-of-the-mill family. No stately form of majesty to Jesus. So very ordinary. And yet, on the other hand, it was anything but ordinary. Because even in the Christmas story that we read this morning, the, the, the whole conception was absolutely supernatural. Nothing natural about baby, the baby in that sense. I mean, she was... He was conceived by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, bringing life into the world, not by natural means. And then the dreams and angels speaking to them and coming to them, just God directing the whole event. Conceived the virgin. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. And it's a puzzling thing. It was puzzling to Joseph. But because it was of the Holy Spirit, the angel comes to Joseph and he gives him the thumbs up to, yes, you can go ahead with this marriage. And the whole story is just so very, very fascinating. Because Joseph, if you think about it, the predicament that he was put in, by the way, Joseph was a good husband and a good father. And he's like many Bible characters that you say, well, how, how can you derive that? Very little is said about Joseph, but what is said just says it all. Kind of like Enoch walked with God. I mean, that's all that we know about Enoch. And yet just what is said carries our mind to a good place. It's like that's all I really needed to know about. It's a summary of him And Joseph, I think, was a good husband and a good father to Jesus. And I say that based on his reaction to what took place in his life. Now, I don't know how the conversation went. And of all things to leave out of Scripture, wouldn't you have liked to have that conversation left in? And that is the conversation that Joseph had with Mary when they hashed all this out. Before the angel visited Joseph in a dream. I mean, they were betrothed. They were going to go through with this. I don't know what it, how it went down, but can you imagine how awkward would it, it would have been? Joseph may have gone to Mary, said, Mary, you're so sweet and you're so sincere. And I was so looking forward to building my life with you. But when we agreed on this, we, we agreed to no premarital holding of hands and no premarital kissing. And you are with child. And I can't go on with this. You've broken God's law. And I'm a law abider and I cannot live with you in this way. I don't know how it happened, but can you imagine? But what we know about him, what is revealed is that Joseph was a righteous man. That means he loved God's law. He wanted to keep it. It was meaningful to him. He delighted in it. He, he, he was pleasing God in his efforts to live according to the law. And yet, at the same time, he was a man of tremendous grace. Because though, by all intents and purposes, the woman that he was supposed to marry cheated on him. What else are you supposed to think? And what else is everybody else going to think? You cheated on the man that you were supposed to marry. He resolved in his heart 
that he was going to deal with it righteously because he can't deny God's law. He can't live with an unrighteous woman. But yet, he didn't want to shame her. He wanted to do it as quietly as possible to protect her as much as possible. That's the grace. And it's amazing because that was a shame culture. It's a shame culture. Now, we would read, if he was a Pharisee, what he would have done is drug her out, put her in front of everybody and said, look what she has done, although I am pure. But look at the filthiness as you gaze at the righteousness. That, that's kind of the, the mindset that some have. But look at his heart. I have to do it for righteousness sake, but I'm going to do it in grace. It's like this balance. Joseph had that balance. So that's why I think Joseph was a good husband. Joseph was a good father. And the, the angel uh, gives him the thumbs up. And they live their very ordinary, extraordinary lives together. So the name was common. But it was also packed with, with meaning. Jesus, uh, the Hebrew translation means God saves, Jesus saves. It's a very, very appropriate name considering what Jesus came to do, which we will look at shortly. It's the Old Testament name of Joshua, and that's a common name to us. You will recall that Joshua was Moses' army commander. When he first came to Moses and began working for Moses, if you will, his name was Hosea. But as he worked for Moses, Moses put the... the uh, well, Yeshua, if you want to get technical, um, he put the yea for Yahweh in front of Hosea. So it became Yeshua. So rather than just Hosea, which means salvation or deliverance, Moses turned it into God is salvation. God delivers. And so Yeshua, Jesus, that's what the meaning of that name is, that God de delivers. That's a perfect name. It's, it's the message of the Bible. God saves. Jesus saves. It's the good news of the gospel. Salvation is from the Lord. That's what the Bible teaches us. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. That's why Jesus came in the world. Because we can't save ourselves. And because we can't save ourselves, baby Jesus in the manger comes to us as a gift. And what he intends to do is to save his people. It's radical grace. So he slips into the world, really with little fanfare if you think about it. He slips into the world, and that is what he intends to do. I think about how Jesus came into the world and how, in one sense, ordinary it is. And apply it to our lives. You know... In our process of salvation, sanctification, some of us have those testimonies that that bring great fanfare where I, I lived in complete darkness, a life of debauchery. God saved me and I have haven't been the same since. And now I'm just passionate and on fire for the Lord. And sometimes there are testimonies with great fanfare. And sometimes there are events in our lives of sanctification where God just does these crazy, miraculous things and we can bear testimony. But most of the time, if you think about the process of sanctification, it's just that ordinary little by little change. 
It's not the big fanfare stuff. And so that's the testimony of the mustard seed of how the kingdom grows. It's, it's just this slow expansion. Now, if we plant a, an acorn and we go out and we look at it every day and we're expecting it to grow, we're going to get bored and impatient because that's not always how it works. But if you just go out every year, you're going to be amazed at how much it's grown, how big and strong it is. And that's that, that ordinary process of how the Holy Spirit often works in our lives. Come back little by little. So the Christmas name of Jesus also reveals to us what the mission was. He didn't just come to be cute and quiet, not a not a crying he makes, no crying he makes. It wasn't as cute as babies are and so forth. But that little baby had a very distinct divine mission, and it was to save his people. To save his people from the wrath of God against their sins. So that they can be rightly restored to the God of heaven. And in the Old Testament, that job was ascribed to God. So countless times we will read God will bring salvation to his people. Isaiah 35, 4. He will come, speaking of God, he will come and save you. But here in Matthew's account and in the other gospels, Jesus is the one who will come and save you. And so the obvious message is Jesus is God. And in case we miss it, Matthew interprets the name Emmanuel for us and says, by the way, so there's no confusion. It means God with us. In other words, Jesus is God. And what he is going to do is he is going to save his people. Salvation is of the Lord. All other religious founders, if you look at at, at the nuance, if you look what you're instructed to do, it is, I can show you the way. And Jesus comes and says, I am the way. I'm not going to show you the way. I don't show you how to get saved or how it's possible for you to get to say, I am your salvation in the flesh. Because salvation is procured only from the Lord. We cannot save ourselves. And that's why it pleases God so much for us to come here and not talk about how good we are or what we've done, but to just love on Christ, to just worship the Christ child because he is our salvation and he wants God. It pleases God and honors God when we make much of Christ and worship him and endure Christ and believe in Christ. Because he is the one that accomplished what we need. Salvation is from the Lord. So he doesn't show us how to achieve it. He achieves it for us. And I think this is where sometimes celebrating Christmas in a cultural way can be very dangerous. Because this is a time of year, really, if you think about it, in order to get into the Christmas spirit, there are certain things that have to take place. Well, we need to sacrificially give to people. We need to spend money. We need to try to smile to people when we're going in and out of the store. We need to brave those long lines and try not to knock people over. You know, we, we try to be on our best behavior because that seems to just kind of go with the jolliness and the glad tidings of the Christmas season. So there's a sense in which we are trying to conform to a certain a behavior and goodness in order to make the goodness of the season alive, to bring it alive. 
So the emphasis can begin to be placed on our behavior. We try to, to live right. Try to make sure we didn't miss anybody and to love our friends and, and our family as they come and go. And there's a lot of visitations, um, as we see this morning, people that we haven't seen in quite some time. And we want to put our best foot forward. We have to be good for goodness sake. And when we pull it off for time, it does feel good. But when we don't, when we blow it, it feels pretty bad. Or I should have got that person a gift or I should have been more grateful or I didn't even invite such and such and I didn't give them cookies. And, you know, and there's just there's there's a mixed bag in here. We can't stay good for goodness sake because, well, we're just not that good. We try to live up to a standard that makes us feel good. And in essence, we're trying to secure something. We're trying to secure our own salvation. Because salvation is to be saved from those bad feelings. Salvation is to be saved from, from the miserable life that uh, is imposed upon us sometimes and we impose upon our own self. There's a sense in which good behavior are little efforts for self-salvation. To bring ourselves to that place of jolliness and glad tidings. And joy, trying to earn it through the good life. And Jesus, the message of of Christmas is that as exhausting as that is, Jesus came to live it for us, to do it for us, to secure salvation for us. And so our our foundation for our right standing, our right relationship with God is in our own behavior, our own works. Our foundation is in Christ alone. Now you know why churches make such a big deal about Christ. Now you know why we can't stop talking about Christ, no matter what kind of pressure is placed upon us culturally or politically. We have to make much about Christ because Christ is our all in all. We are nothing without Christ. We are abandoned without Christ. And so God the Father is pleased when we look to Christ as our badge of honor and not ourselves. And by the way, it's exhausting to try to do God's job for him. You know how exhausting it is to try to save yourself? This is what led to the Protestant, the, uh, the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was so exhausted trying to, to do so many right things, thinking, was this the prayer that I prayed that secured my salvation, or do I need to pray another one? Was this the good deed that nailed it, or do I have to do? How do I ever know when enough is enough? And you don't. And when we try to, when we get into that pattern where we're trying to find our good favor based on our behavior, it's exhausting and we will let ourselves down. And then the, the good news is good news all over again. Christ secured it for you. That's where the rest comes. We can't rest if we persist for the wrong reasons and the wrong motives to try to procure our salvation and be in right standing with God. But we can just let out that sigh of relief and thank God for sending us Christ, the son. Who lived a perfect, righteous life and who brings us to God, even though we don't deserve it. What a beautiful plan that God has for us. We don't have to be worried about that because Christmas happened. And then lastly, I want to talk about the Christmas serpent. And I almost 
didn't put that in there because who in the world wants to talk about a serpent at Christmas time? Because Christmas is supposed to be a happy time. And we all know that serpents, well, they're really kind of a symbolism of something that's bad. And serpents can instill great fear in certain individuals. So why even bring this up? Well, we have to know that along with the peacefulness and the holy night, the silent night, and the goodness of the gospel is evil. And you have to know that Satan, who wants to destroy God's glory, wants to rob God from the glory and distort people's perception of God so that he can have it for himself. He's all in it. And and so we, we have to beware all year round, but even in the Christmas season of the Christmas serpent. Well, this this tendency or propensity to side with the dark side because his mission is to destroy and to distort. And in order to, I think, to understand all of this, we got to go back to the garden. I think really to understand God's plan and, and, and the Christmas story, we have to travel back at least a little bit or briefly so that we understand why unto us a child was born and unto us a son was given. The Bible calls that glad tidings and good news. One of the paradoxes of Scripture, I'm sure you have found if you are Christian, is that the Scripture is constantly telling us to deny ourselves. It's telling us to give things up in order that we might gain things of the kingdom. And a lot of times, in order to get the joy and the blessing that we want, Scripture is saying, you have to surrender that. You have to give this up. And our hearts, uh, that's friction. Because there are many times when God is really the gentleman that he is, but persistent, perseverance of the saints, he is desiring to deliver us from something in our own hearts. That's that blockage. And we're saying, no, I'm good. And the EKJ is saying, no, you're not. You need to get in that bathroom, strip down and get in that gown with the big gap in the back and hold it as tight as you can when you walk around. Our hearts, guys, and and we have a tendency to think, no, actually, I've given a lot of things up. But this or these group of things, I'm sure I can't give up or I'll lose my joy. And it's a paradox there. The problem is our hearts have a terrible time dying to self and we, we prefer to, to try to preserve certain aspects in order to assure ourselves that we can get the joys of the pleasure that we think that we need in this life. And we're convinced of that. And so there's this clash that happens in our hearts. We're scared that if we give this particular thing up, we will really miss out. So I want to share a little story with you by the great uh, preacher, scholar, theologian, Um, Sinclair Ferguson, and he tells a a story to pull this idea of the garden and God's plan in our hearts and the Christmas story together. He says, taking us back to the garden, why we struggle to embrace Christ fully, who actually has come to save us from our sins. 
He says, imagine it's Christmas time. And imagine that a man, that a father is taking his son to a, a, a grand department store. In fact, it's not just a department store. It's a toy factory. It's a place where all the beautiful, wonderful, desires Christmas gifts are made. They make them there. And he takes his son to this grand place. And it is absolutely decked out to the hilt for Christmas decorations. I mean, there, aren't, there isn't just one big tree. There are Christmas trees everywhere. And you can't even see the whole place from one point. You have to walk around and go to this wing and this department and this building and this over here. It's just incredible. And the toys there are fun. And so the son says, Dad, look at that. It's a train. It's big enough. And there are kids riding around on it. Isn't that so cool? Don't you like that, son? And so they're going around and they're, they're Christmas trees with presents heaped upon presents, pleasure upon pleasure, candy canes everywhere, everything that represents Christmas and goodness and joy. And the son, he, his eyes are just about dried out because he can't close them. He just everything is, is wowing him. Cars that are electrified. I mean, everything that you would want as a child. That, that horses that you want for Christmas, the pet monkey is there. Everything that you want for Christmas is there. And he is just beside himself. Because it's not even just the toys, but this whole, it creates this whole atmosphere of harmony and beauty and peace. And he is loving how it makes him feel. They're, they're both, wow, do you see that, son? Yes, I see that, daddy. It's a beautiful thing. It's a marvelous thing. I love those things. It's a mountain of joy, pleasure upon pleasure. And so they're all done. And the father takes his son out to a bench outside the store. And they sit down and he said, did you see all those things, son? Did you enjoy all those things? He said, oh, yes, father. He says, well, son, I just want you to know that you can't have a single one of them. Let's go home. So Sinclair says, now, I know this sounds crazy. But imagine this happening. Now, would that warp a child forever or what? You take me in here. You open my eyes to things I never even knew existed. I just experienced a joy to my heart that I've never experienced before. And I don't get it. None of it. Not even like a candy cane. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it really just affect a child? And that, wouldn't that child wonder, well, what are you all about, Father? Can I even trust you with my heart? What are you doing to me? I don't think I can trust you anymore. So then we go back to Genesis 3 in the garden with Adam and Eve. So let's, let's just transplant from uh, that wonderland to the garden wonderland, which is paradise. We know that in Genesis 3. And God creates all these things and every one of them are absolutely good. They're fascinating. They're beautiful. They give man all that he needs. And he tells Adam and Eve, look around as far as you can see. You can eat from any tree. Any of them. 
They're all the same. And there's adventure beyond adventure. There's excitement. You can run north, south, east, west as far as you can. It's all equally wonderful and good and beautiful and satisfying. It's absolutely delicious. I want your life to be delicious. Wonderful. Good. Pleasant. But you see that one tree. That one tree of all of them. That one tree you may not eat of. And you would imagine that, of course, I'm paraphrasing all this, but you would imagine that Adam and Eve would be like, hmm, why is that? Well, because I'm God. And that one tree is my gift to you. That one tree is how we will grow our relationship of love and trust. That one tree is my gift to you to trust me. And as you go through life enjoying all of these wonderful things and avoiding that, your love and admiration and our relationship will just grow and grow and grow and grow. That is your gift of trust. And then the serpent, the Christmas serpent, comes along to Adam and Eve, God's children, and said, did God say you can't eat from any of these things? And they said, no, 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 he didn't say all of them, just that one. And what did he do? He says, oh, that one, that one, that's the very one that you need to eat from. Because that's the one that will give you what you don't have. That will make you like that. God, that will give you the knowledge. There is more joy in that one tree. God is holding back on you. And right there into the bloodstream of humanity comes this tension between God that we know of as the fall of man, where there are parts of our hearts that believe the lie of the serpent instead of the loving trustworthiness of God. And we say, I can't give you that part of my heart because I know that my heart is going to take me to this place of pleasure. And if I don't eat of this, I'm going to be miserably missing out. So there are places. I thought about this. I read that story and I thought in my own heart. Ah, got me, got me. You know, there's things that I willingly give up and some things I'm not so willingly give up. But there are things that I don't trust God with. It might be my future. It might be a relationship. It might be the outcome of something. It might be with my money. It might be with my ministry. It might be whatever it is. There are things that I gladly trust God with. But I am sure I can't give you that part of my heart because you'll ruin it. And I got it just where I want it. It's feeding me just enough pleasure. And I am sure if I follow you and die to it, it's going to be miserable. When Jesus came into the world, as cute and loving as he was, he came in the world to be your king. He came into the world to capture all of you. To reign and rule over all of you, your whole heart. And the challenge is just this. If there's something in our lives, that one little area, those two little areas, whatever it is in our hearts that we have been holding back because we're sure if we give this to God, I can't I can't receive the pleasure and the joy that I want to keep for myself. We're not trusting God. We're believing a lie. 
And I would just say and challenge you to, to take that part of your heart and wrap it up and, and give it to Christ the King this Christmas. Because it can only mean that God wants to take you to a better place. That's it. A better place. That's the promise. Because all throughout Scripture are these little hints that you got to take that seed and guess what has to happen to it? It's got to die. It's got to die. And if it doesn't die, it's not going to then grow into what it was intended to be. So as we die to self, the joy of the kingdom, the Christmas wonderland, if you will, all the promises of Christ are lived out in our flesh and in our blood because not only did he come and not only is he coming again, but he comes to us and comes to us and comes to us day after day because Jesus saves. Merry Christmas. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.